Welcome to Stonewall Spotlight, a monthly podcast by the Stonewall Democratic Club that will cover the most salient issues in democratic politics through the LGBTQIA and feminist lens. I'm Marcus Lovingood. And I'm Mackenzie Hussman. We have a full episode for you today. We're going to hear from Alex Villanueva, who is our Democratic endorsement for LA County Sheriff. And we'll hear some coverage from our Stony Awards fundraising event that took place on April 28th. Lauren Buisson will share a bit of history about Judge Walker, and we'll also hear from our Vice President of Communications, Sean Kuloji. But let's talk about some events that are coming up in our area right now. LA Pride is right around the corner on June 12th. After last year's Resist March, I'm getting real excited for this year, Mackenzie. Me too. I've got my rainbow wear all ready to go. This year, we're going to have decorated trucks in the parade, a tent, a photo booth. Make sure to follow all the action on social media with the hashtag Stonewall Pride. The Dyke March is happening on June 8th. You can find out all about these events by visiting www.weho.org backslash pride. Now let's hear from Marcus's interview with Alex. It's high noon for the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department. Long played by accusations of excessive force, rogue deputies, and preferential hiring, the deep-seated rot of the LASD, the largest local law enforcement agency in the country, made national news when it conspired to obstruct an FBI investigation. According to the New York Times, the scandal reached the highest levels of the department. Officers ranging from rank-and-file deputies led to prison sentences for former Sheriff Lee Baca and his immediate subordinate, former undersheriff Paul Tanaka, for interfering in the federal investigation into the jail system. More deputies have been found guilty of routinely sexually humiliating inmates and severely beating them at the jails, according to the Justice Department. With a record number of deputy vacancies, overcrowded jails, and two federal consent decrees, one must ask the obvious question, can the L.A. Sheriff's Department be rehabilitated? Here to discuss his plans for the department and its challenges is Stonewall's endorsed candidate for Los Angeles County Sheriff, Alex Villanueva. Welcome to Stonewall Spotlight, Alex. Oh, well, thank you for having me there. It's been an honor. You know what? This is an amazing campaign that you're running. I want to give you uh, the opportunity to tell us a little bit more about why you're running for L.A. County Sheriff and what your campaign is all about. Well, my platform is real simple. It's reform, rebuild, and restore the organization back to what it can be and what it should be, and it's serving the entire community. I served for 32 years on the department. I worked under four different sheriffs, and it got progressively worse. And when McDonald was voted into office four years ago, he came on a platform to reform, but he failed to reform. He actually made all of the mistakes of Baca even worse. Hard to believe, but he found a way to do it. And I couldn't walk away from an organization I spent my entire adult life in and just leave it in the shambles that it is. And I realized I have the ability to fix it. I know where we can change the organization internally, how we can interact with the community better, and definitely create a department that is worthy of the representation of the entire county. Fantastic. And uh, and you retired as a lieutenant in the sheriff's department, correct? Yes. Okay, fantastic. How long ago was that? That was uh, end of February. So uh, according to the latest information on the department's Wikipedia page, the Los Angeles uh, County Sheriff has 17,694 employees. It's the nation's largest sheriff's department. 
The department's three main responsibilities entail providing patrol services for 153 unincorporated communities in 42 cities. It's really the huge, huge jurisdiction. Providing courthouse security for our Superior Court of Los Angeles County is something that you guys do as well. And housing and transportation of inmates within the county jail system. To what degree are the problems that plague the department related to its gargantuan size, and uh, is the sheriff's department too big to succeed? The biggest problem the department faces, one, is a crisis of leadership at the top, and a parallel crisis is a severe understaffing of the department. Mm, We're approximately anywhere between 1,200 and 1,500 deputies short right now, based on our current budget, which is enormous. Like for every eight deputies, you're missing one. I'll give you a real simple example. The city of Chicago has 2.6 million residents, and they have a jurisdiction of roughly 285 square miles, give or take. The sheriff's department polices a jurisdiction that has 2.6 million people as well, almost identical population. However, our jurisdiction is spread out over 4,000 square miles. Chicago PD has 12,500 sworn Uh law enforcement. They're the second largest in the country next to NYPD. Mm. We're the fourth largest with the 9,500, and those that are dedicated to patrol is barely 3,500. So oh, we're doing the same job that Chicago is with a fourth of the staffing. Gosh. That gives you an idea of how severe the problem is. So things are just falling through the cracks. You know, uh, issues can't be addressed, and communities can't really be served like they should be. Well, prime example is and uses of force, a, a problem that is near and dear to a lot mm-hmm. of people's hearts is uh, shooting of unarmed suspects, all these things. And they occur across the country, not as frequently as people think because they're amplified by social media. But if you look at uh, the feedback and the studies that are done after these tragic incidents occur, one of the primary issues that is addressed is training or the lack of training. Mm -hmm. And how could things have been done differently if they were trained properly? Well, guess what? In the Sheriff's Department, we can barely keep up with the state mandates as it is, let alone train to a higher level of competency. Mm. We just don't have the staffing, the resources to train, and that is a big obstacle to reform the organization. Of course. So are there, is there any hope in sight when it comes to being able to re- get the resources to at least get more you know, uh, you know, deputies and people on the ground? With the current staff in charge, unfortunately, no. That's mm. just not happening. So we have these huge staffing issues. Uh, how do you feel that we can get more deputies into the department? One is we got to start by not scaring them away. Mm. <laughs> I mean, McDonald is priding himself, and his part of his uh, platform to, for, uh, to bid for re-election is how, much, how many people he's fired. Well, you're not going to attract people, hire them by firing them. It right. just doesn't work. In fact, that's just bizarre, the mm. whole idea. Right now, there are about 1,000 deputies under, 1,100 deputies are currently under investigation Jeez. out of only 8,000. So that means that's that many people whose careers are on hold. Sure. They're nonproductive. Mm-hmm. Some of them are angry, confused, bitter, you name it. And guess what? They're the people that are we're expecting to go recruit other people mm. to come into the fold. And it's just not going to happen. So we can't scare away potential applicants. We've got to make the department more user-friendly for prospective employees and then the current employees we have right now we have an exodus of people leaving the department as soon as they can when i came on it was very common to see people work for 35 years even 40 years it was considered i mean i know in today's environment millennials and newer generations there's not that same 
cradle to grave one employer their entire career. Mm-hmm. People tend to ju- you know jump around, but in this profession, people tend to stay around because there's advantages for having seniority built in. Plus, you know your ability to rise through the ranks and you know plumb assignments and all that. You gain those by seniority. Sure. If you jump around, you go back to the bottom of the barrel. So there's really not that. So there's if you're pension in, and things right. like that, health insurance and all those great things. But in this line of work. You want longevity. You want to encourage longevity. And right now, people are leaving left and right because, one, they're tired of McDonald. They're tired of the uncertainty of the conditions they're working under. And as soon as they get to the 25-year mark, which is when they're fully vested in their, their health care benefits, mm-hmm. then they just walk away. They're ready to go. And they're walking away, leaving a lot of pension on the table that they right. could earn. They just don't care anymore because mm. they're that upset with his performance. Amazing. So we just got to... You know, get someone else in there, much like you, to invigorate people to get get involved. One of the things, too, we're going to attract a higher caliber of applicant right now. I want to raise employment standards. I want to raise the educational minimum standard to a two-year degree or 60 units from an approved four-year institution. And right now, we're at 96% of the people that apply get rejected, so we're only hiring 4%. But that's of a pool of people that we're not attracting the best and the brightest. I want to raise the crowd entirely, their caliber, so maybe I can drop that rejection rate down to 80% mm-hmm. instead of 96 down to 80 from a smaller number, and I'm going to be recruiting more people. Mm-hmm. And that's part of the key. And then providing incentives for education within the organization, providing standards, so all of a sudden we're going to get rid of a political patronage system that really scares people away and convert it into a merit-based civil service system where you're promoted based on how well you serve the community. Mm-hmm. Then all of a sudden I get buy-in from everywhere and then people want to come into the organization, Fantastic. especially the underrepresented uh, sections of Los Angeles County. And that could be in the African-American community, the Latino, the Asian community, the LGBTQ community. Some of these mm-hmm. groups that are underrepresented throughout the organization, I want to hire them all. Mm-hmm. But I have to first make the place attractive for them to consider it as a career choice. Fantastic. So you've noted that... Uh, the many, many challenges facing the department is the imperative that it rebuilt, be rebuilt um, from the ground up based yes. on community policing principles and ethical standards of conduct. And you just talked about, you know, grabbing people and citizens from each different, you know, group in Los Angeles. That's really fantastic. Let's talk about the deputies that are there now under the investigation. Given its well-documented systematic failures, how likely is it that this goal can be achieved Given such a long-standing culture of uh, overuse of force, you know, corruption, and even criminal misconduct by these deputies that we were just talking about, surely many problematic deputies have yet to be rooted out, right? There's always going to be a certain element within any large organization, no matter what line of work it is, that they're going to be problematic employees. Mm-hmm. Some might be problematic because they're incompetent, others because they're malicious. And we want to make sure that all the policies and practices and investigative capacity we have in place is robust enough to discover them and weed them out. Right now, we're not there. In fact, our entire internal investigative apparatus is compromised. I'll give you a prime example of that. Under McDonald, he had an assistant sheriff named Mike Rothens, who left his position about two years ago unceremoniously because he was caught driving a stolen vehicle. Yikes. That made the news. It was a big splash, and it was an embarrassment for McDonald. The problem was not just that the number three guy in your organization is committing a felony. 
is that he wasn't held accountable for it. Nice. The evidence necessary to hold him accountable criminally, like any you know, John Q. citizen on the street, mysteriously disappeared and walked away. My goodness. The custodians of record, management, mm-hmm. part of McDowell's management team, they were promoted. They weren't held accountable for the records that disappear under their control. Mm. That is a problem. We can't hold those people accountable. That that's represents systemic corruption at the highest level. Of course. What deputies can do, and deputies are going to get in trouble now and then, but it's going to be very small in comparison to that degree of corruption that Mr. McDonald has fostered under his care. Mm. So there's this, like, I would say hidden brothers club within the departments that are keeping problematic um, deputies in, even when there are systematic problems that are keeping the department moving forward, you'd say? Well, it's a code of silence where Mm -hmm. if you have information that is damaging, Mm -hmm. it represents either a threat or an embarrassment to the organization, they're going to try to silence you. Mm -hmm. First step is to promote you. Give you a plum assignment, keep you in the fold, so you keep your mouth shut. They even reward you. They'll even say, "Oh, he he sucked it up, you know, and you know did his time." And then you know they threw him a bone. They they threw you a bone. That's that's how they describe it. And it, the whole thing is so you're morally obligated and loyal to the status quo. Mm. Among the rank and file deputies, they don't really support tr- corruption at all. They don't tolerate it. There's a dirty deputy. They're isolated among their peers. Like, I don't want to work with them. No one wants to work with that person. It gets to the attention of the supervisors, the line supervisors, watch commanders, the station level. That's where all of a sudden depends what happens. Mm -hmm. If the person doesn't enjoy the political patronage of the sheriff and his minions, well, then then they get outed and then they face the consequences like any dirty cop should. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, if they're they're in the car with the sheriff, Mm -hmm. nothing happens. Right, so that double standard is what upsets the organization. Under the, the reign of terror, I'll call it the reign of terror of Lee Bach and Paul Tanaka, there was a captain who became commander and then chief overseeing Internal Affairs Bureau and Internal Criminal Investigation Bureau. This is the same bureau, as the saying goes, couldn't find a crook in San Quentin. Yikes. What does McDonald do? Kept this person on overseeing Internal Affairs and Internal Criminal Investigation Bureau. She just retired... I believe two weeks ago. Oh, man. Those type of things really damage the reputation of the organization and internally is just dispiriting to the morale of the rank and file because the overwhelming majority want to do a good job, mm-hmm. want to serve the community. That's what they came to the of course to law enforcement to begin with. And their face with that example is just horrific. And the indifference of both McDonald now and then my other candidate, Bob Lindsay, when he was overseeing personnel. Mm-hmm. They get paid to look the other way, or they just don't care because they don't want to rock the boat. Okay. Well, I've rocked the boat my entire career. Well, uh, that's uh, outrageous because uh, now it seems like there's so much emphasis and focus on the deputies when really it's the people at the top or the people kind of right below that are not holding people accountable, not you know, letting deputies uh, who make mistakes, you know, uh, rehabilitate themselves. They just let it happen. Precisely. The deputies are going to make mistakes tactically and issues. And if it's just a simple tactical mistake, a policy mistake, no malicious part on their part, malicious Mm -hmm. intent on their part, 
there is no reason to put them through the grinder and destroy a career, which costs the taxpayer in the end. Because mm. some of these people actually end up getting wrongfully terminated. Then they have to sue to get their job back. And then the management or McDonald's thing is, well, go ahead and sue, get your job back. And guess what? Two, three years later, they do get their job back. Mm. And it costs the taxpayers a fortune in the fortune. process, mm-hmm. in the attorney fees, damages, all these things, plus the lost productivity. And now you have to rehire the angry, bitter deputy who right. lost his career over nothing. Mm-hmm. And that damages our recruitment also. So there's so many elements in play in this big scenario that's going unfolding right now. It's like a slow-moving train wreck. Mm. And under McDonald, he did the same thing in Long Beach. There was a litany of Long Beach officers who lost their jobs through wrongful terminations, and slowly but surely they've been getting their jobs back. Mm. Because when you violate somebody's due process and you wrongfully terminate them, they're entitled to get their job back. And unfortunately, along that way, you might have some dirty cops that shouldn't get their job back. Mm. They may get their job back so that Mm -hmm. you can see it. It's damning in so many different ways. So many ways. So what's the solution? How do we solve well, this? Well, the solution is, one, you got a clean house of all of the elements that are still remain. In fact, when Paul Tanakh was rising through the organization, he was recruiting his foot soldiers. Those foot soldiers are McDonald's command staff. Mm. Those foot soldiers were protected, sheltered, and assisted in promotion by Bob Lindsay. Mm. Now they're McDonald's command staff. My thought process is, if they're not civil service protected and they're part of that group, Goodbye. Right. They do not serve any purpose for the community or for the organization. I will clean house top to bottom. Mm, fantastic. And that's really what needs to get done. Fantastic. Civilian trust in the department is uh, strained, to put it uh, mildly right now. Uh, reform LAJL is a coalition, a coalition that includes public safety and criminal justice reform leaders, among others, aims to gather enough signatures to put a proposed measure on the November ballot. Uh, the measure would give the Sheriff's Civilian Oversight Commission, now an advisory body, subpoena power to compel the release of documents and testimony from witnesses connected to the oversight. Uh, You've called for meaningful civilian oversight of the department. Do you support this initiative? And if elected, what steps would you undertake to promote transparency, ensure accountability, and regain uh, public confidence in uh, the department? I made this promise, in fact, to the the lady who's the campaign manager for that ballot measure. I told her, if the measure passes, I will support it because it is law. However, it will be unnecessary because I will give them the information they need to do their job effectively, which is to be an effective representative of all the stakeholders in Los Angeles County. Mm-hmm. However, they need to operate in the aggregate sense. In other words, they need to be reviewing policies, practices, procedures, programs, anything of that nature, how it impacts the community, how it impacts the department, and give me that information, that feedback, either current practices, past practices, or something that is proposed in the future. Mm-hmm. And then... We can sit down and I can make an informed decision based on the information they supply me. Fantastic. That's how it's supposed to work. We don't need to have subpoenas for that. Mm -hmm. At the individual level, however, the subpoena becomes inappropriate because we have other laws that impact it. You have the Peace Officer Bill of Rights. There is a process to get information at the individual level. It's called a pitches motion. But you have to be a party to a lawsuit to do that and you have to be in standing to see the personnel files. Is the trend towards more transparency in personnel files? Yes. Are we probably 
the least transparent in terms of personnel files compared to all the other states for law enforcement records? Yes, we are. However, there's a long way we can go towards easing some of that transparency. And that is, for example, if a deputy is involved in a shooting, I think the public has a right to know, and they are going to know that they were involved in X amount of shootings or significant use of force. Mm-hmm. And Transparency is great. There. That type of thing informs the public, lets them know. Mm-hmm. I don't think there's nothing wrong with that. But information that's going to jeopardize the safety of the officer is where the concern happens. Of course. And if you've seen with now with the ability of social media, all of a sudden someone outs the officer's address and then there's a mob lynching, you know, a lynch mob ready, you of know, course. chase him down. And that's my, my preoccupation the with that regard. process is just thrown out the door, you know. Yeah, in the rush. And unfortunately in, mm-hmm. in that rush, calmer heads don't often prevail. Classic example was in Maryland when the six, when the Maryland DA indicted the six officers mm-hmm. over the the death of um, the gentleman that was being transported from arrest. Six indictments, very strong statement from the DA about what she was going to do, and think she charged them with murder and all kinds of. And I thought, based on the information at the time, that seemed like an overreach, mm-hmm. and it turned out exactly that. She went over six because she went too far, satisfying you know, the lynch mob mentality mm-hmm. without, you know, get your facts in order and then go forward with uh, with an indictment based on the facts that you have established and you right. can prove in court. Mm-hmm. It's important for due process because criminals are tired of due process, so are cops. Mm-hmm. Of course. And I think it's really profound, and I haven't heard this from any of the other sheriff candidates or even from the sitting sheriff, that you really support uh, bringing people to the table. Giving people a seat at that table and hearing, you know, what their concerns are, like you said, and using that conversation to make an informed decision instead of your own gut instinct or something that may not be within the interests of the people, right? Well, my experience is that the best decisions are made that are inclusive, that everyone had a seat at the table, gave their opinion, and then you make an informed decision that represents the interests of everybody. And you have buy-in from all the different stakeholders because they participated in the process. It wasn't a, here, this is it, take it or leave it, which is what we have. In fact, the drone policy that we have right now is a prime example of how McDonald failed to use the Civilian Oversight Commission properly. Mm -hmm. He should have brought, hey, we have a drone. It has a potential to do some positive things. There are some preoccupations on the other side about privacy issues. What do you think? Mm-hmm. Let them hash it out and come back with a decision. Mm-hmm. Instead, he said, this is my policy. Take it or take it. Mm. And you saw the reaction from the Civilian Oversight Commission. Oh, my goodness. It, it was wasn't very... It wasn't... Uh, but good. the actual issue that they should be used for it made sense. Yeah, you want to search collapsed buildings with a drone? Who wouldn't want to? Right. You have a hostage in a barricaded situation? Who wouldn't want to have a drone to give an eye that no one can see without putting their... They're heading in the sights of a, a rifle. Of course. Those are the ones that are common sense ones, but it didn't make it out of that process because he bungled it from the very beginning. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you've got to be common sense, and you have to listen to people. And a lot of that language was so vague, and people needed that assurance that it wasn't going to be uh, used in ways that uh, wasn't like the examples you just made. Right, and I do not support it being used in any other way. And, of course, we have so much fear of Big Big Brother watching us. And there's, of course, again, we're the victims of our own technology now that every single day there's a new revelation of another way technology can be exploited. 
you know, our detriment. We were talking earlier about the homelessness problem. It's it's right in my backyard here in um, in downtown Los Angeles. Some twenty percent of county jail inmates are mentally ill. Add to this record number of drug addicts as well. Um, and you have a system strained to accommodate a custodial population well beyond its mandate. However, the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department agreed to federal oversight of this jail system in an effort to end abuse of inmates by sheriff deputies and to improve a chronically poor treatment of mentally ill inmates, which is great. However, the department is yet to comply fully with this agreement. What are your plans to ensure that the department fulfills this obligation? And if elected how would you work with other leaders uh, to house the mentally ill and substance abuse uh, more appropriately? Well, one, I have to sit down with the Board of Supervisors, the City of L.A., the Mayor of L.A., all the major stakeholders in the political arena. And we have, now with the bond measures that you mentioned, you know, H and H, we have some resources. We also have the massive county budget. We have the pending uh, reconstruction of the Men's Central Jail, for example. Mm -hmm. So there are a lot of resources that are going to be devoted, and a lot of them are going to be constructing capital assets. The question is, what are we going to build and why are we going to build it? Mm. Are we going to build another warehouse for human beings like Men's Central Jail? God forbid, no. Let's hope not. But that's literally what it was built for back in the early 1960s, and is a horrific design that doesn't allow for anything. Modern construction is one that increases sight, you know, line of sight, mm-hmm. increases commu- sense of community interaction that are more positive instead of just warehousing people in rows, you know, where you're just looking at a wall. Right. So, but then who belongs in there? Big question. So we have to really start thinking about from the bigger picture. And this is really, it's really easy to get down into the ideological weeds and just blind yourself. Well, I'm a conservative. They break the law. They got to go to jail. Or I'm a liberal and no one belongs in jail. It's dehumanizing. There's a point in the middle where the people that are a threat to the community, a threat to others, they're the ones that we probably need to keep in the jail system. The ones that are suffering from mental illness but are not a threat, we got to find a way to keep them out of the jail system. Mm-hmm. That means we're going to have to devote resources to a lot of those facilities that were closed, shuttered back in the 60s and 70s because of you know Reagan and that whole sure. the Lander and Petras Act, for example. Mm-hmm. we got to find a place to put them. I don't want them parked on 6th and San Pedro in a tent. Right. They do not belong there. No one belongs there. They need to be rehabilitated. We need to focus more on rehabilitation, right. correct? There's some that are, are, we need to focus on rehabilitation. There are some, unfortunately, that are so mentally ill that mm-hmm. it's tough to find a place. The most we can do is keep them safe, comfortable, ensure they get proper medical care and, and medication that they're not getting right now. And that's one of the bigger causes of, of, of death. Mm-hmm. Uh, death or really is a lack of medical care because they're not... They're not receiving what they're supposed to receive. Right. Rehabilitating people once they go into the jail system. Mm-hmm. I want them to leave in a better situation than when they came into it. Mm-hmm. Right now, we're not doing that. Yeah. One good thing that Lee Baca did, when he probably the only good thing he did when he was in office, was he, he cast the stay in custody in a different light. He created the education, uh, education-based incarceration. The philosophy that you should learn when you're in custody, mm-hmm. take advantage of the time, come out with more skills so you're employable. So when you go into reentry, you actually have something to offer an employer and that you, they can hire you, of course. get you out of a life of crime. But unfortunately, 
his mind was an old county bureaucratic model where you just add another layer of bureaucracy, you create another division with another captain, lieutenant, and that whole, what it did. And then the deputies were supposed to do it were no longer the module deputies that are interacting on a daily basis. Now it was a different set of deputies. So what does that do? Creates division. Mm-hmm. It should have been something that should have been incorporated within the daily routine of the deputies that provide the housing, the security for the housing. Because then you get the buy-in, you get the interaction, more positive interaction. Probably reduces the use of force within the custody, re- reduces assaults on staff. So, so many benefits of it if you have a different approach, a more organic approach. Sure. But he took the old, what he was comfortable with, his old bureaucratic model. Let's just hire a whole new everything when you had to take it a slightly different angle. So what I'm getting here is instead of arresting our way out of this public health crisis, you're saying we have to look at this, we have to focus on, one, rehabilitating the people that can be rehabilitated and give them those services, and but also those that cannot also you know, give them the medical facility treatment they need as well to yes. get people off the streets. Same thing with uh, drug rehab. One of the bad side effects of Prop 4757 was that was one of the, you know, the carrot and a stick method that we got people into drug rehab was avoid the felony mm. because they were felony crimes, possession of narcotics. When it became misdemeanors, all of a sudden that incentive disappeared. So actually the, the bed space and rehab centers started getting bigger and bigger mm. because mm. They longer had before you could not get a bed space, and that was a, the fight the judges had in the courts Yikes. and the DAs and probation people. They could not find bed space for their clients mm-hmm. or the defendants. Now, now it's real easy because there's not the same uh, incentive. So we have to incentivize a way to get them into rehab. And where we need to tweak forty-seven fifty-seven AB one hundred nine, we we need to just be honest with ourselves. Get some good clean data. Yeah. Not from the screaming heads from both sides of the spectrum, but just, okay, what's work? What's working? What's not working? Mm-hmm. And then go back, okay, can it stay the same? Do we need to tweak it in some fashion? But be honest with ourselves. Mm-hmm. Problem is that we adopt an ideological posture and then we just shut out everybody else because it conforms to our belief right. and we're ignoring the reality on the ground. But our decisions need to be based on hard reality. Metrics. Got to look at the metrics and we got to implement for the needs of what the needs really are. True. And your statement about arresting our way out of a problem, that statement has been repeated by about every sheriff and chief of police and DA Mm -hmm. in the country at this point in time. And it's true because that was a model of the 80s and 90s. Now, okay, we're going to arrest the people that really need to go, the ones that pose a threat to our community. Mm -hmm. The ones that are in drug, well, that's more of a medical issue. Mm -hmm. Let's see how we can get them off to that path. Juveniles, do juvies or, you know, young kids do stupid things? Yeah, every young kid does stupid things. We're going to make sure we're not going to send them down the wrong path that they can't recover from and have them start their life with an anchor around their neck. If we can avoid it, let's avoid that. Let's keep them on the right path. A good example is uh, my wife and I, she just retired with me from the sheriff's department. We have a, a, a couple, and they clean houses for a living. They have five kids. One of their kids at the age of 14, they decided to light an M80 in the athletic field of their local high school. (laughs) After class, you know, late in the afternoon, of course, big bang, alarm, car alarms went off and all that. They caught him, Mm -hmm. detained him. They are going to throw the book at him. Destructive device, terrorist threats, uh, or act of terrorism. And 
the school was going to expel him. I mean, the typical nice. yeah. over-the-top reaction. So I wrote a letter, and I addressed the concerns of the parents and explained that, no, he shouldn't. And they actually listened. Wow. Fantastic. He's in his second year of medical school. Wow. So that can tell you how that one point in time, had they just went along with that approach, mm-hmm. the outcome might not be the same. Had they, fortunately, they listened, we have a positive outcome. But so in that crowd, we have to be mindful of that. Absolutely. That we have to make good decisions that are going to encourage our youth to, to take a path towards respecting the rule of law, taking care of their family, and then having that focus towards moving up, going to school, going to college, getting a job, being productive members of society. Absolutely. So as you know, jail facilities are subject to chronic overcrowding at this point, which triggers a host of complications, particularly for LGBTQ prisoners. Uh, LGBTQ prisoners can present unique housing requirements to ensure their safety while in custody. How is the department doing with regard to keeping LGBTQ inmates safe without resorting to solitary isolation? In the women's jail, it's Central Regional Detention Facility. I worked there for two and a half years, and there is no segregation based on being a member of the LGBTQ community. It's just okay. you're there physically, qualify as a female, that's where you're, you're housed. Mm. There is no other alternative to that. Within that system, the only people that are isolated is because they pose a threat. Either they assaulted other inmates or engage in some act of violence, or they're a threat to themselves. They're trying to kill themselves. Those result in isolation there. Where it gets trickier, then, when you go into the transgender community, then it, then it starts getting a little more difficult because the medical staff might say, wait a minute, I have a transgender woman. Is a gender reassignment surgery completed or not? Where does the person fall along the spectrum? And because of that, what's the, what's the liability of the county if I have a person who is in one halfway through, but then all of a sudden assaults a member of technically the opposite sex. Can that person turn around and say, you mm-hmm. failed to protect me? So you get you get both sides of the coin. And this is unfortunate, but fortunately there's a large enough number on the, on the male side, the transgender male, that they can be isolated amongst themselves, not isolated by themselves, but there's enough where they have their own housing location within the system. But then again... It's a men's central jail, which is not, like I said, it's a warehouse sure. for humans. So that's the place I want to get them out of. They don't belong there. Wow. Mm-hmm. But then we have another competing issue, which is their security level. Mm-hmm. Are they a homicide suspect? Are they at the highest security level? And it's inappropriate to house them anywhere else. So there's a lot of competing things going on at the same time, but we need to do definitely ensure we're working with representatives of the community and those that are incarcerated to make sure we have the resources necessary, or we're going to have to go to the Board of Supervisors and say, this is not going to work this way. We'd like to take another plan of action. Or in the future, as we're building and changing Men's Central Dale and those resources, is there another alternative we can use to house members of the LGBTQ community safely? And it's always going to be on the the male side that is the challenge, not typically on the, the female side. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And that kind of gives you an idea of how, you know, and this is how the lawyer is going to be thinking about what's the threat to the county. Interesting. And uh, are these programs like for trans individuals, are they at all the jails in, uh, would you say, across California, or is that starting to happen more and more? 
We probably have more to do with it only because of sheer number. Sure. I think San Francisco probably might be in the same boat as we are to mm-hmm. a smaller degree because their system is smaller than ours. But just by sheer numbers, we probably have the biggest. I'd probably gather to say the biggest in the entire country. Mm. Wow. Now, the question is, the resources don't always match the need. In our case, we don't have the resources that match the need we have. And right. going back to the mentally ill population, those that we can divert and stay away from the jail system entirely. Mm-hmm. Um, for example, also the cash bail system, the process of reforming that where it's not money that tells you or not you can stay in jail while you're going through your trial, mm-hmm. those type of things, also impacts the LGBTQ community as well. So there are things we can do to improve the situation. Mm-hmm. Most of them are not happening the way they should. Right. And so I'm really, really glad that you're dedicated to helping us really dedicate to strengthening these programs within the jail system and really be there for the trans community because it's really, really important right now as the trans community, of course, as they become more prominent in our society, they're still extremely targeted. Oh, well, I agree. And one thing I want to do too is I want to hire them. Hmm. We don't have enough. They're definitely not reflective of our population on the, on the sworn side mm-hmm. or on the civilian side. And we need to hire more. And then the more voices we have within the organization, it's going to better serve the LGBTQ community overall. Fantastic. Well, Alex Villanueva, candidate for uh, L.A. County Sheriff, thank you so much for sitting down with Stonewall Spotlight and being a really strong representative of the LGBTQ community uh, in there in the Sheriff's Department. Oh, well, thank you for your time. I am Alex Villanueva, and I am Stonewall. Let's listen to some on-the-spot interviews from the Stony Awards. Assessor Jeffrey Prang, how are you doing today, I'm Mr. Doing Prang? Doing great, great. Fabulous. Isn't it gorgeous? It is beautiful. Well, fabulous. So it's the year of the woman. Tell me about what, how you feel women have really made great strides in Los Angeles this year. Well, we have. It seems like we have a lot more running. A lot of them uh, doing very well in their uh, in their races. Uh, we, I think, there's a lot of women in LA County who are well prepared, who've been working their way up the ladder from being commissioners to local officials, and they're stepping forward and uh, and with good reason. The administration of Washington D.C. is. Uh, basically told not just women but all Americans if you want to defend yourself and your rights you gotta you gotta step up and participate so what does it mean the year of the woman Lester um, as uh, being the president of the club this year well you know it's not like women just started doing being a part of American politics this year but we are hoping that because of you know the activism that's going on in among women this year that more women will be elected to office in 2018 than ever before there's more than 500 women running for uh, Congress and the U.S. Senate this year, and we want to make sure that as many of them are elected and make a difference, you know, really bring up those numbers, but also bring their sensitivity and their issues to the fore. Excited to have Sean Kologi on Stonewall Spotlight today and on this episode. This is his first time on the show. 
Sean is the Vice President of Communications at the Stonewall Democratic Club. He also happens to be the Editor-in-Chief of Stonewall Spotlight. Thanks for being with us today, Sean. So glad to be behind the mic today. It's really nice to have you in person. We're doing amazing things and making a big difference. And uh, one of the big things is, you know, election coming up. You know, we, uh, we've done all these endorsements. We've interviewed some great candidates, you know, Ricardo Lara, um, Monica Rodriguez, mm-hmm. um, Luz. Luz Rivas, yeah. Rivas was amazing. And, she's you know, fantastic. she won her election. She's amazing. looking good to win again on June 5. Yeah. Um, all these great interviews. And so, you know, we're leading up to that June 5 election. You know, people are turning in their mail-in ballots. Uh, send in your ballots. Drop them off at the collection locations. Um, we're happy to have you on here because it's important. I know a lot of you out there have not, um, they, you don't really know all of the races on there. You don't know, you know who you should pick because you guys aren't necessarily in the room. So Sean is an expert at, you know, one, who's running, why they're running and why you should choose them as well. You know, it's because our, our, um, endorsements team has done such an incredible job at, um, lining up, uh, interviews for us, uh, at the club. I mean, I think it was like over 70 candidates were interviewed. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And our slate, you know, you can check out our website and see it and, and we have, um, a tremendous slate of endorsed candidates, but Uh, let's um, get into that. Right. Um, right. And we're also going to look at not just the ones we've endorsed, but just kind of the big races to watch. Um, I'm kind of a political junkie. I love to watch the, the returns come in. And so if you're watching on Election Day on June 5, you know, what are we looking for? And I think first, let's look at the statewide races. Yeah. Um, obviously, governor is the premier race. Big um, one. Number one, right? <laughs> yes, it is. Absolutely. <laughs> Jerry uh, Brown's uh, leaving us again. Again. I mean, again. After, after the most terms of yeah. any governor. And, and um you know, a lot of people, uh, you know, he's, you know, been a a democratic governor. He kind of, um, has a certain style of governance that we're, we've been Mm -hmm. used to. Um, and we're definitely going to have a change. And, uh, we have Gavin Newsom, Lieutenant governor, uh, Stonewall has not endorsed in this race. Uh, let's make that clear everybody. We have not Uh, made. So he's, he's the front runner. And I think everyone would agree that he's definitely going to make the runoff. And so California has a top two primary. We don't have party primaries anymore. Everyone's voting Republican to to state Democrats, we're all voting for the same folks. Whoever gets the top two, whether it's two Democrats or a Democrat or Republican or a Democrat to state, they go on to November. So yeah. I want to explain to everybody kind of what you just said, because a lot of people don't really know how the California primary works in the general election. So it, it's not like in the presidential election where you go and you have your Republican primary, you vote for your Republican candidate, Democrats do the same. In California, it's the top two vote getters. Right. The top two people, whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, that get the most votes go on to the general election. Right, Sean? Uh, correct. Correct. And of course, as you mentioned, the, the exception is the presidential election. And, you know, sometimes you have special or local elections, which um, have, you know, if you get 50 percent in the primary, there mm-hmm. is no runoff. All right. But, so, so let's just go on to governor now that everyone knows that information. <laughs> absolutely. So, I mean, so we, we talked about Gavin Newsom. He's the front runner. We expect to see him in November. And so he has a lot of supporters. He has a lot of establishment support. But, you know, he's also kind of um, more associated when he was in San Francisco, more San Francisco has kind of more of a grassroots versus a Brahmin kind of uh, corporate political right. establishment. And so he's more associated with the more moneyed uh, side of that politics in San Francisco. Although, it's a long uh, history there, too. Right, know. he does. As a statewide candidate, though, he's definitely moved to the left and, and been, you know, a more progressive voice and, and been um, on that. Uh, we also have... Um, 
LA mayor, Antonio Viragosa. Uh, he super popular here in Los Angeles. Absolutely. And we haven't had a Latino governor and obviously Latinos, um, are the largest, uh, demographic group in California right now and, and are growing political powerhouse. And, uh, he has connections to that community. Um, he's kind of running a little bit more moderate on some areas than maybe Gavin Newsom sure. is. And there's a kind of a North South divide, as you pointed out, very popular with some people in LA. John Chung is also running. He's a controller. He's been our treasurer. Mm-hmm. Um, um, he did a very good job. You know, he has a lot of respect for um, the way he's managed the state, the way he's helped us through financial crises, budget crises. Um, the problem is he doesn't seem to be catching fire necessarily. And yeah, not really, no one really knows his um, name. He doesn't have any name recognition like the other two do outside of the party. Right. I mean, he he. I think people may know him because they've seen him on the ballot, but he he certainly is not. He's not catching the fire yet sure, the way sure. he is. And uh, I would say that um, the, the challenge is there's a Republican in the race, too. And if the Republican makes the top two, then um, that, that can, you know, be a challenge. But actually, Gavin Newsom wants the Republican in the top two because that guarantees his election. Okay. All the other Democrats want that second slot. But as activists, there's a question of strategic voting where some right. people might say, if we have two Democrats in the top two, it might boost turnout. So that's what we're looking at. We're also looking at Delaine Easton. She has a kind of a more progressive insurgent campaign. Um, she's the only woman running Year of the Woman. So she has that going on. So lots going on in the governor's race. Uh, Can you give us a very interesting? I think it's going to be Newsom versus the Republican. I think Cox, okay. the Republican John Cox, is going to probably come out ahead. Um, Gavin Newsom is running ads attacking John Cox for his position on gun control, but he's kind of playing a jiu-jitsu move where he's attacking him on gun control in order to increase his Republican support Mm. so that he gets more votes. Um, And so with that going on and with the fact that you have so many good Democrats in the field, I think it's going to be Newsom versus Cox in the November election. All right. Well, that's governor. So their next you know, big high-profile race is the Senate race, right? Yes, and this is a, a what's really interesting about this race is the divide because you have Diane Feinstein is an institution in the state. Uh, she's you know has a lot of accomplishments to her name, her work on the Intelligence Committee, um, kind of taking on the Bush administration over the torture situation. Um, she has a number of accomplishments on the Judiciary Committee. Um, But at the same time, she has somewhat of a more moderate record Mm -hmm. that some of the party activists are concerned about. Um, And so you have Kevin DeLeon also running. Um, He is trying to get that activist support. And also there's the situation also where um, immigration is at the forefront. And Mm -hmm. he's one of the, the... Leaders, the leaders on immigration, yeah. and a lot of people think that maybe his voice needs to be at the table on the immigration issue. So I think both of them are very interesting candidates, and I expect both of them to be on the ballot in November. I know it's a big uh, party divider here in California, this specific race. I, you would think that the governor race would be the one that's going to divide California Democrats, but honestly, how I see it, it's really the Senate race between bringing back Diane and the uh, getting some fresh meat in there, you know, between Kevin. Well, but I think, you know, I definitely think that Dianne Feinstein has the advantage overall because of the experience and because ultimately when you're an experienced senator, if, if you have a good reputation, people are going to retain you. And she has a lot of money 
and she has a huge name recognition. Of course, California yeah. is a huge state. And so I think it's a healthy debate. I think mm-hmm. that the is issues that, that Kevin DeLeon are raising, I think whether he wins or not, it raises those issues. And then um, Senator Feinstein is going to pay more attention to those progressive issues because he's in the race. Mm-hmm. So, you know, he may win. I don't think that I think that Dianne Feinstein has a very strong chance of retaining the seat. But I think th- having that pressure from the left is is a good thing. Yeah, it's definitely getting conversation going in and definitely from DiFi's campaigning and the messaging she's putting out there. It's bringing her definitely uh, further away from the center, in my opinion. It, it seems like Kevin's, you know, pulling her closer to the left. I absolutely think that's the case. Yes, a good thing. So, uh, lieutenant governor, which is a position that's often looked over, um, can you talk a little bit about those? Yeah, and I, I don't think it has that much power um, either. Um, all of the candidates are not very well known, and I don't, you know, I don't think we need to focus too much on it. But I would say that the advantage goes to Eleni uh, Kunalakis because I think being the only uh, kind of prominent woman in the race that's a Democrat that gives her an advantage over a lot of the other candidates. Uh, Senator Ed Chavez is also in the race. Ambassador Jeff Bleich. Um, but I think that she'll be in the November election with a Republican mm. and. You know, she's relatively new to politics, but the lieutenant governor's office is a great place to learn about politics. And by the time you're out of the office in four years or eight years, uh, you will have the experience to take it to the next step. And just so everyone knows, if you didn't know listening, of course, our current lieutenant governor is Gavin Newsom. Correct. uh, And Stonewall did not endorse in this race. So we're just saying that just based on the polling and just kind of the dynamics, we just think that's going to happen. I think that's going to happen, not we. But (laughs) Yeah. So another big race, Attorney General, got uh, two big names in there to talk about uh, Dave Jones and Javier Becerra. Yeah, I think the appointment of Javier Becerra to this race was kind of a snub to Dave Jones. Um, The seat opened up, of course, when Senator Kamala Harris um, was elected, and um, Dave Jones had already been running for attorney general. And so Governor Brown made a deliberate decision to kind of go and find someone else. And it's interesting that Javier Becerra, um, who was the fourth most powerful member in Congress, jumped from Congress to this position. I think it's a different culture in Sacramento. I think, you know, uh, a lot of people um, support him, but Stonewall supports Dave Jones because um, Dave Jones has kind of been focused on the grassroots. We feel that he has a better uh, grasp of some of the key issues that have been affecting the state, having uh, worked as insurance commissioner and uh, is the best choice for that position. I think that both Dave Jones and Javier Becerra will advance to November, and I think it's going to be a really tight race. I think it's going to be really tight. I don't know who's going to win. I think it's going to be probably one of the ones to watch. And one thing to watch in the primary is look at the vote totals. Uh, You know, it's the top two. They get another chance to run. But whoever comes in first after the primary in terms of the most total votes that's an important indicator of the health of their campaign. Mm, interesting. Very, very interesting. So just some last, um, you know, tail end uh, uh, candidates here. Uh, positions, of course, our Secretary of State, Alex Biddy, and Controller Betty, we are in, we've endorsed both of them again, right? Absolutely. Um, Controller Betty and, and, and uh, Secretary of State Padilla, uh, people have 
been quite happy with the job that they're doing. And also newcomer Fiona Ma, she's expected to win handily without much opposition. Um, I expect, you know, they'll proceed to the fall and rack up more than 60% against whatever Republican uh, they face. Great. So those are kind of, that's kind of a nutshell of the key races that uh, we really uh, believe are important and that you guys should uh, have some great information about. But what I really want to talk uh, about with you, Sean, right now are some trends to watch in California. Mm-hmm. I know that there's um, some, uh, Social media uh, stuff going around, especially with the North Calens and Southern California divide, if you can talk a little bit about that. Well, yeah. So for a while, our senators and the governors have come from Northern California when they're Democrats. Um, Governor Brown, um, I mean, Governor Davis was from down here, but um, Senator Feinstein, Senator Boxer, Senator Harris, we have a majority of the population down here. And so there's a little bit of a, that dynamic going on. So that's where you see that in the Gavin Newsom versus Vera Gosa or John Chung race. Both Chung and Vera Gosa are from Southern California. Um, you also see that in Javier Becerra being from Southern California, Dave Jones from Northern California. Although Dave Jones has worked very hard to get broad statewide appeal, um, it's a dynamic to look at when you're looking at the election returns. And then uh, kind of what we were talking about before with DiFi and Kevin DeLeon, you have this establishment versus progressive insurgencies that are that are kind of, you know, battling out within the party right now in California, right? Absolutely. Um, although it's kind of interesting that DeLeon would be considered a progressive insurgent given that he's state Senate majority leader. So he definitely is a different part of the establishment to some extent, but he's um, tried to harness that energy. Although, you know, we look in the governor's race, we see Delane Easton's trying to kind of do that type of campaign, although it, it hasn't really caught fire um, in terms of getting her into the top two. Now, to discuss kind of Kevin DeLeon's power within the state, we haven't even talked about the power of the Latino vote here, of course, and that's going to make a huge difference, of course, right? Right. I think that, you know, after Prop 187 happened, um, you saw a big increase in California in activism in the Latino community. You saw more voter registration, more voter participation. You saw um, more voting and you saw some Latino candidates win that, and Latina candidates win that weren't expected. For instance, um, uh, Loretta Sanchez, when she run her race in Orange County, she took on a conservative Republican and that was considered a Republican base. And she won because... Latino voters were energized and outraged. And here you have Donald Trump, and it's not just Latino voters, but you have Asian American voters. Mm-hmm. You have, um, you know, lots of, people of voters, yeah. but particularly people of color who are fed up with what the it's Republicans are doing, and particularly the direction that they've gone. Mm-hmm. And when we look at Orange County turning blue, you know, having voted for Hillary, potentially voting in four additional Democrats in the House. There are four target seats there. It's going to be the Asian American voters, the Latino voters that are switching sides or that are getting activated and deciding that they're going to have their voices heard. Well, I find it really fascinating, actually, that you bring this up, uh, because now that I look at it, the second candidate in each of these extremely contentious and important roles are Latinos. You've got Kevin DeLeon against DiFi. You've got Antonio Villaraigosa against uh, Gavin Newsom. You've got Dave Jones against Javier Becerra, right? I mean, it's like, it's 
white and Latino, white and Latino, white and Latino. So it's it's like it's amazing that the Latino vote one is they're getting their candidates there. I mean, they're getting their candidates close. And two, I think that it's just profound that they're having such an incredible impact at least thus far. Right, and one of the you know biggest races that. Um we've I've, I forgot to mention up front was of course Ricardo Lara you know that race right. where you have a Latino candidate um and I think that he's favored he's up against two other candidates but he's absolutely the best candidate you know Stonewall um has endorsed him we interviewed him check out our first uh, inaugural podcast for that fantastic interview that Marcus did with uh, Ricardo but thank you Don he, <laughs> he would be you know the first out uh, LGBT person, statewide office, also a, a strong advocate for uh, Latino voters. Um, he has a tremendous record in the state Senate. You know, he's um, on the forefront of the fight for health care um, and, and on immigration issues. And so I think that um, it'll be fantastic to have him in statewide office. And I think that, you know, the opponents he's up against, you do have a, one of his opponents who's a Republican. He actually was notorious back in the 90s for his anti-immigrant campaigns. Mm -hmm. So you have a really good contrast with a strong LGBT Latino Democrat um, who's progressive and has a good record versus a Republican who fits into the mold of Trump before Trump in, in terms of the 90s, in terms of the the hateful rhetoric towards immigrants that we were seeing at that time. So let's talk about what is on every Democrat's mind, and I believe Republicans' mind, too, is taking back the House. You know, what are your predictions, and, and what are the chances of Democrats taking back the House in November? I think that the Democrats have a really good chance. I think that there are a lot of different um, factors. You know, for instance, uh Trump's polling is about between 37% and 42%. Um, so it's not good. Um, Democrats have an edge in the generic congressional ballot. Um, there's the midterm elections curse. You know, the, the opposing party typically wins in midterm elections. There are the special election results. We see that Democrats flip 41 Republican House seats since Trump's inauguration. And Americans on our, are on the Democrat side on the issue. So all of these things weigh towards Democrats taking back the House. And it's really important that they do that because they get oversight powers. They get the power to investigate, to issue subpoenas. And... You know, an example of that is the embarrassment that we saw at the House Intelligence Committee run by Devin Nunes. Mm -hmm. And um, Adam Schiff, um, the congressman from West Hollywood, um, you know, he's been battling, um, and we've seen it in the news, you know, the the obstruction and the deceptiveness of the practices of this committee. And in order to hold Trump accountable, in order to make sure that we find out what happened and we stop you know, kind of the 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 problematic uh, ties to Russia and to some of these Middle Eastern dictatorships. We need Adam Schiff in that position as mm -hmm. chair of Intelligence Committee. We need Democrats in charge of these other committees to investigate and to prevent that from happening. The Democrats they need twenty three seats to pick up the House. Currently, Republicans have. Uh, 235 seats, but there are also five vacancies that are kind of Republican seats. So Democrats um, have a good shot. And a lot of that shot goes through California and goes through those local elections in Orange County. Um, one of the challenges in Orange County, though, is the top two primary 
we're looking at a situation where in three of the districts, there's potential that two Republicans might advance Mm -hmm. if Democrats don't start unifying. And we've seen this in Congressional District 39 and Congressional District 48 and the 49th. In the 39th district, we have um, Gil Cisneros is kind of the leading Democrat. He's endorsed by the DCCC. I think he has a good shot. He won the lottery. He has $350 million. He's been spending that Mm -hmm. money. But he's also facing... uh, uh, Thornburn, who is a businessman who also has millions of dollars that he's been spending. And so right. both of them have been spending millions of dollars. The race has gotten kind of nasty, lots of accusations back and forth. The Republicans, meanwhile, kind of played this trick in Orange County where rather than have their incumbents run again, their incumbents actually step down. Normally, a party doesn't want open seats. But in this case, open seats benefited them because it, mm-hmm. it, it created the potential that you could have two Republicans advance. So in the 39th, we expect young Kim um, to probably advance. She's a former state assemblywoman. One of her um, infamous acts in the assembly was she was a vote against access to bathrooms for trans people. Mm-hmm. And this was one of the things that she... Um, used to attack her opponent in the state assembly race. And so, you know, it's really, we don't want her in the House. We don't need people that are anti-trans, anti-LGBT in the House. Um, So definitely um, we have that one to worry about and uh, also the 48th and the 49th where we we need Democrats. So definitely get out the vote in those districts and we need to do that. So let's, let's, uh, in in wrapping this awesome political uh, report um, election report up. Um, talk to us about the exact numbers that we need. Sean, can, can you okay. tell us those numbers? Yes. Yeah, so uh, we have 435 seats in the House. And so right now, Democrats have 195 seats. There are two Democratic vacancies and Democratic strongholds, um, and Republicans have 240 seats. So that's 23 seats to make it up. I think the Democrats can do it. In California, Democrats should hopefully get between five to six seats, uh, which would be amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> that would bring the number of Republicans representing California uh, to a very low number. Um, it could be potentially as low as you know four or five Republicans total mm-hmm. out of 54 in the state. Um, that's unprecedented. California yeah. used to be a closely divided state, you know, was a Republican stronghold 30 yeah. years ago. Yeah, not too long ago. And now it's completely, um, even strongholds like Orange County, we could look at Democrats in the House. And that's going to be critical. Um, other states like Pennsylvania, Democrats can pick up maybe five or six seats there. Um, a lot of the seats are going to come from suburban voters. So definitely doable, 23 seats. Um, hopefully they get a few more um, so that, you know, on tough votes, we have the votes that we need to pass the types of, le- of, of legislation that we need to pass to kind of put a check on Trump. Um, but I think it's absolutely doable in the Senate. Um, it's a bit tougher. Um, it's 51 to 49 right now. Democrats need two seats uh, to pick that up. But unfortunately, Democrats are playing defense. Uh, there are only a couple mm-hmm. states where Democrats can play in. But I do think that um, there's a chance in the Senate, but we can get into that another time. Fantastic. Well, if you have any uh, more questions about who you should vote for and you live in L.A. County, please go to stonewalldems.org, our website. We have our 
um, slate on there for you to take a look at. Just fill in your ballot uh, to um, help us elect strong LGBT uh, representatives um, and uh, representatives that, of course, support the LGBT community. Thank you so much for uh, coming on to Stonewall Spotlight, Sean. We really appreciate your uh, report and uh, really giving us an insight into uh, not only who we should be voting for, but why. Thank you. Thank you, Marcus. All right, we heard the wonderful Miss Senator Holly Mitchell. How are you doing, darling? I'm fabulous. How about you? I'm doing wonderful. Good, are you excited good. about the Stonies today? Always excited about the Stonies. I'm a past honoree, and I will cherish that memory always. But to be out here in beautiful downtown L.A., and this is why we all live in Los Angeles. Weather like this, great people, great weather. It's going to be fabulous. Oh, just the weather is beautiful. Yeah. And this is the year of the woman, honey, right? This is the millennium of the woman. Right, absolutely. Yes. So I'm so thrilled that you all are honoring Representative uh, Karen Bass today. Because, um, yeah, it's the year of the woman, and women are going to continue to step up and take charge and save us all. I love it. Absolutely, <laughs> right? Creators of the universe, and now we're going to take it back, right? All day long. All right, Donna. Thank you so much for uh, being here and just being a representative of the LGBT community and just being amazing. And was thrilled to have the opportunity to help co-sponsor today's activity. And so uh, I am an ally always um, with my check writing and my votes. And so I'm proud to be here. King Jr.'s oft-quoted observation that the arc of history is long, but bends towards justice, comes readily to mind when considering the long fight for LGBTQ constitutional equality. Many of those victories are recent ones. Lawrence v. Texas in 2003 overturned the Supreme Court's egregious 1986 ruling in Bowers v. Hardwick and declared that all Americans were entitled to the privacy of their own bedrooms, regardless of sexual orientation. In a dyspeptic dissent, the late Justice Scalia warned the court that the Lawrence ruling had opened the door to gay marriage, which is indeed what happened in 2013, when in a five to four decision of Windsor v. US, the Supreme Court found section three of the Defense of Marriage Act to be unconstitutional, quote, as a deprivation of the liberty of the person protected by the Fifth Amendment. Much of the arguments brought to the court were decided in a San Francisco federal district court where Judge Von Walker tried the constitutionality of Proposition 8, which declared marriage as being between one man and one woman. In overturning Hollingsworth v. Perry in 2010, Walker put his shoulder to the door of marriage equality, enduring some personal splinters in the process. to share her insight into the influential jurist and his most famous decision, it's my pleasure to welcome back Spotlight contributor Lauren Brisson. Lauren, thanks for coming on today. Oh, thanks for having me. So who is Von Walker and how did he come to hear such a seminal case? Von Walker is uh, an enigma wrapped in a conundrum. He was in the late 1960s uh, a Woodrow Wilson fellow at the School of Economics in UC Berkeley. And then he takes his JD at Stanford in 1970. After clerking in the U.S. District Court for the Central District of California, Walker goes into private practice in San Francisco. 
It's been said of him that his approach to the law was uh, a melding of economics and, and the law, sober and conservative. Now, what makes him particularly interesting in this case is that Walker's a Republican who was nominated to the federal bench twice, first by Reagan in 1987 and again by George H.W. Bush in 1989. His nomination was opposed by Democrats, led by Nancy Pelosi, who considered Walker hostile towards the LGBTQ and poor communities mostly because of his success as a private lawyer, where he represented such controversial clients like the NRA. But what he's best known for is his successful enforcement of the trademark of the Olympic name. Mm. Uh, And the gay Olympics was enjoined from using it. And this basically kind of enshrined the animus with which he was held. When it comes down to hearing Hollingsworth v. Perry, the case we're going to be talking about today, He was actually randomly selected. There are many twists and turns involving marriage equality in California. Would you summarize some of the highlights for our audience, please? So the big highlight was that President Bill Clinton signed the Defense of Marriage Act into law in 1986. It's abbreviated as DOMA. California, as many states did, then decides to get its own law to sort of duplicate DOMA, mm-hmm. right? And yeah. DOMA basically said marriage can only be between one, one man, man and one woman. So Prop 22 comes along in 2000. The state Supreme Court strikes down Prop 22 in 2008. In the two years between Prop 22 and when Prop 8 is um, voted in to amend the state constitution, 8 15,000 same-sex couples get married in California. Now, mm-hmm. what this means, and the question that really is looming large, are those 18,000 marriages now null and void? Right. Or are they allowed to exist in a parallel universe where, yeah, this group is married because it's always harder to take away rights, mm-hmm. but nobody else can join this group? So you can see how the court has to get involved to resolve this conflict. Well, wasn't Hollingsworth v. Perry unusual in many respects, especially its plaintiffs? So <laughs> when it gets to the uh, federal district court, and that's when Walker comes into the picture, the nominal defendants of the case would have been uh, the governor and the attorney general, mm-hmm. which were uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger and Jerry Brown at the time, neither of whom wanted to defend this law. Right. They declined. So you would think that in declining, it would disappear. California law allows for a wide variety of people to have what the courts call standing. That means you have, you, you're being harmed in some way. And so the people who supported the initiative that became a constitutional amendment became the people defending Prop 8 and its constitutionality. And the lawyer for the uh, defendants was Charles Cooper. So what was the immediate aftermath of the ruling? Well, this is the beauty of Walker's 138-page decision. In declaring Proposition 8 unconstitutional, Walker becomes the first federal judge to invalidate a state's ban on same-sex marriage. And he meant no words. An unconstitutional act of discrimination. He said that, All the Prop, and I'm quoting here, all that Prop 8 accomplished was to take away from same-sex couples the right to be granted marriage licenses and thus legally to use the designation marriage. It serves no purpose, no purpose, and has no effect other than to lessen the status and human dignity of gay men and lesbians in California. Hmm. Facts matter. 
In that 138-page decision, Walker's meticulous finding of facts lays out the logical arguments that were used in the successful case of Windsor v. U.S., which struck down the key provisions in DOMA that held that marriage was between a man and a woman as unconstitutional. He's finding of facts, which are now enshrined in laws. Nobody can get rid of how he logically pursued the case and supported his reasoning. That's here to stay, and that's what made it really in my view, gave it so much punch. Yeah, you have to go through it methodically in order to, to, to really prove it. And it would have been simple for him to actually issue a much shorter ruling mm-hmm. because the defendants put up two witnesses as their experts, and their expertise was eviscerated by the lawyers for the plaintiffs, who were David Boyce and Charles Olson. They come together on a libertarian issue. And they just follow the weight of Walker's reasoning all the way towards the Supreme Court. And they're successful. So when he retired from the bench, Walker reflected on his most famous case, one witness's testimony in particular, right? Well, this is interesting. So with Walker, he had been quietly but openly gay for quite some time. Mm -hmm. And... It wasn't common knowledge, but people shouldn't be surprised by that. Jurors, uh, jurors keep their lives private. That's why they're judges. Right. But Joe Becker wrote in her book, Forcing the Spring, Inside the Fight for Marriage Equality, which is all about this case, that she came to see a different side of Walker. He retired from the bench in 2011, and Walker tells Becker that it was the testimony of Ryan Kendall and his traumatic experience as a survivor of conversion therapy that touched him the most. Wow. And for Walker, this meant that he thought about his own attempts to cure himself of his homosexuality. And people need to remember that when he was going to therapy to try and be made normal, mm-hmm. homosexuality was still considered a I, mental disorder. Yeah. It took him a long time to become comfortable with himself. And after he retired, he publicly told the press that he was a gay man, whereupon uh, they tried to appeal his ruling under the notion that he should have recused himself, which was Uh. preposterous because you go down that rabbit hole, (laughs) then um, no judge would ever be able to hear any case because they'd always have a conflict now, wouldn't they? And so, of course, that was dismissed quite quickly. Well, Lauren, is there anything else that you'd like to add? Well, one thing I'd I'd like to point out that, and what Walker has said, is that he considers the beginning of gay marriage to start in 1962 when every state criminalized gay sex, Mm -hmm. every single state. Towards the end of 1962, Illinois puts it in the common code, but it's no longer, you know, you're not going to be heading to jail for a felony. And in 1967, two men in Minnesota try looking for a way to get married and to try and challenge this. So people need to be aware that it may seem like these all came together in a rush, but this has been something, this move to justice has been going on for at least a lifetime. And one of the things that for me was most telling about Walker's ruling was, you know, it's, it's in his conclusion. And he just says, Proposition 8 fails to advance any rational basis. Rational basis is the lowest standard of scrutiny when you're evaluating a case. 
and singling out gay men and lesbians for denial of a marriage license. Indeed, the evidence shows Proposition 8 does nothing more than enshrine in the California Constitution the notion that opposite-sex couples are superior to same-sex couples. Because California has no interest in discriminating against gay men and lesbians, and because Proposition 8 prevents California from fulfilling its constitutional obligation to provide marriage on an equal basis, the court concludes that Proposition 8 is unconstitutional. Wow. Well, thank you, Lauren. It's always a pleasure. The pleasure was mine. Thank you so much. We're here with Wendy Siegel. She is a candidate for a judge here in Los Angeles. Thank you so much for being with Thank us today. Thank you for having me here. Fabulous. So tell us about what it means to you about it being the year of the woman. Well, I think 2018 is the year of the woman, as is every year, but especially this year as I'm running for judge, and I got the Stonewall endorsement last week, which means the world to me, and it means the world to me to be at this event. Thank you so much for being here, too. And and thank you so much for um, advocating on behalf of the LGBT community and just, you know, feeling like it's going to be an amazing time for us to succeed, right? It is, and this is my community as well, and I'm honored to be here today. Fantastic. How do you how do you feel like women have made big strides this year in L.A.? Well, I think there's a lot of women running for judge and other offices, and hopefully we will persevere and we will win. All right. Wendy Siegel, thank you so much for being with us today. And on three, we're going to turn to the camera and say Stonewall. Ready? One, two, three. Stonewall! Well, that concludes this month's episode. Thank you all for listening. Ugh, it was such a great episode, wasn't it, Mac? It really was. They're just getting better. They just are. And we really want to thank all of you for listening. And we're excited to bring you another episode of Stonewall Spotlight next month. Yeah, tune in then. Join the Stonewall Democratic Club today by visiting stonewalldems.org. We want you. I'd also like to thank the Stonewall Democratic Club for bringing us together and making this possible. Thank you to everyone on our communications team. Sean Kologi, our editor-in-chief. Marcus Lovingood, our producer and my co-host. Alex Paris, our script supervisor and writer. Lauren Buisson, our researcher and writer. Alex Paris and Marcus Lovingood edited this episode. I'm Mackenzie Hussman, your host and contributor. Thank you for listening to Stonewall Spotlight.